welcome back to the show. And a huge thanks to everybody who made a donation to our efforts in the month of April. We announced the winner of the custom-built Tim Pony surfboard on Instagram. Shane O'Connor is the gent's name. He's been a longtime supporter, and I've actually already put him in contact with the Tim Ponies, so they are getting him dialed in. And I'll be sure to get photos of that board once Shane receives it, and then post it on Instagram, at Surf Splendor, if you want to follow along there and see what we've got going. Today's podcast is with Kauai Council member Luke Evslin. If you've been listening to this podcast with any regularity, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series of episodes centered on the island of Kauai. In the recent weeks, I've interviewed Hawaii natives, board builders, professional surfers, transplants, landowners who are stewarding land that they inherited from generations of family before them, newer landowners who figured out a way to acquire some of the most expensive real estate in the U.S., and today's guest actually adds a lot to those conversations. Luke Evslin was born and raised on Kauai. Before being voted in as a civil servant 20 months ago, Luke co-founded Kamanu Composites with his partners Keizo Gates and Kelly Foster. Kamanu builds high-performance single-person canoes, and a consensus believes that they are actually the world's fastest canoes. Kamanu manufactures locally and sustainably, In today's conversation, Luke talks about the challenges of running a composites manufacturing business in Hawaii. He talks about how he's addressing some of the top priority issues through City Hall, issues like housing and climate change, and he shares the harrowing near-death experience he had at sea that permanently altered his life's perspective and launched his life as a civil servant. Spoiler alert, he was nearly cut in half by a boat's propeller. It's an insane story, and his recovery from it is almost unheard of. One other important note is that this conversation was recorded in Kauai on March 10th, 2020, two full months ago. So Luke mentions COVID-19, but at the time of his mentioning, it hadn't really quite hit pandemic levels. And it takes place in a part of the conversation where we're talking about local manufacturing and its importance. And he gives an example of how our nation's outsourcing of face masks in previous decades has led to a shortage of access here and less resiliency in our nation's response, which of course results in more infections and more deaths. Well, 20 days later, after we recorded this conversation on March 30th, as COVID hit full saturation, Luke and his team at Kamanu Composites transitioned their manufacturing of their facility from canoes into manufacturing face shields. Local supplier Fiberglass Hawaii donated the first 500 shields worth of mylar, and then Kamanu added the foam and a fastener to design and manufacture face shields. So they were able to produce a few hundreds of masks a day and then donate those to local hospitals and first responders. So I think that speaks volumes about their business and congrats to Kamanu for their super fast work. And I think that you'll see that that level of service to their local community is reflected through Luke's worldview that you'll get to understand here through our conversation. So without further ado, my name is David Scales and here's my conversation with Kauai Council Member Luke Evslin. I can see angry faces in the eyes of men 
from New York. They moved here in the 70s. I was born uh, here in 1984. Spent most of my life here. I lived in California for two years for college and, and Oahu for six years. Gotcha. Uh, how'd your parents end up here? My dad's a doctor and there was like a, a one-year position here that opened up at the hospital. So they came in with my mom kind of on an adventure. They were living in Guam before that and, and Mexico actually before that. So they came saying, oh, maybe we'll, you know, live on this little island for, for a year and see how it goes. And they, uh, they never left. Holy cow. Yeah. That's, um, is your father still around? Are your yeah, parents still both around? Parents, yeah. They sound amazing. <laughs> That'd be a good podcast interview. I mean, that takes such an adventurous spirit to be able to do that back then. Yeah. Uh, they are, they are amazing. I should say that. And, um, and yeah, I think, you know, they, they obviously had that adventurous spirit going from New York to, to Mexico and in the tip of Maine for a while and then, and then Guam. So they were, wow. yeah, I think, um, yeah, those are all very, very different places. Yeah, I spent some time in Maine last year and uh, was blown away by it. It's beautiful. I have, I have actually never been. So. Okay, you should go. It's a good, <laughs> it's a good vacation spot. Um, Portland, Maine, is where I was most amazed by. It was like this small shipping town, I think, originally that has now become um, like this culinary mecca. So all these chefs out of New York and big cities on the East Coast are that area who can't afford to start a restaurant in New York. You know, it's like they come out of these other important restaurants with all this training and they want to get into the business, but it costs a couple million bucks to start a restaurant in New York, or you can go to Portland, Maine with 50,000 bucks. And so there's this tiny town, there's 400 restaurants in wow. this downtown and they're all super interesting. And now JFK is running flights out of New York to Maine. So people go for lunch or for dinner and come home the same day. So my, yeah, my, my parents actually lived, uh, now that you said Portland, they, they lived some ferry ride off of Portland okay. on this little island. Yeah. Uh, so interesting. My mom, actually, my two older siblings were born on that island or born in Portland maybe. And they had to like take a ferry. When my mom was in labor, I'm pretty sure they had to like take this ferry to, the, to Portland. Crazy. Uh, yeah. Crazy. Well, it really says something about Kauai if they've had that life experience and chose to stay on Kauai. Yeah. So uh, what was it like growing up? I mid eighties. Um, yeah. Through the, through the eighties, I, I have nothing to compare it to here. So I, I think I had a great childhood. Yeah. Uh, How'd you spend your childhood? Uh, actually I, I played a lot of computer games. So really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought this is where we started talking about paddling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I, so I, was the, I get, a, I get teased a lot from my family and like, like I would play a lot of games. I, uh, I used to like, uh, to, to avoid the glare on my computer when I was playing in the middle of like the hot day, I'd put a blanket over myself in the computer. So I'd be playing under the, it was like a sixth grader just playing on the computer. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah. What were you playing? Uh, Nintendo 64. No, at that time it was this this online game EverQuest, uh, like oh, okay. this, this role playing game. But uh, but no, I had like um uh, Sega Genesis and and PlayStation. Yeah, so. those. I'm a couple years older than you, but similar era of gaming for me too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so your father's what did you study when you were getting into like high school level, looking at college? What were you studying, and was your father interested in you pursuing his same career path or? Um, no, there was, you know, none, I have three older siblings and none of us be, went into the medical uh, field and there was never, uh, never a push for it. Sometimes I thought maybe I'll do pre-med when I go to college. Um, but, um, but no, when we were in high school, we, uh, me and 
my two best friends from Kwai Hai, we, you know, we were paddling canoe a lot and we just had this real firm idea that we wanted to build our canoes um, for, for our life. So that was, you know, my focus in going to college was really about trying to understand business and come back and be able to run a, a canoe manufacturing company. So how'd you get introduced to canoes? So my dad paddled uh, growing up. I actually, I remember maybe when I was like nine, I started paddling and I, I was terrible and I hated it. So I quit. And then I went back at um, when I was 12 and, uh, and I kind of didn't really have a choice because uh, my dad was, you know, he, he'd paddle at five o'clock, five to seven thirty, and he'd bring me home at night. So either I could just hang out at the canoe club um, or I could start jumping into the canoe. So I, um, I ended up just paddling like five days a week kind of by necessity uh, with the kids program and then going out with my, you know, that all program when I was 13 years old and, um, and spending a lot of time in the canoe. And it was, you know, going from a kid who just played a ton of video games to, to spending my life in a canoe was uh, an important transition for me to make. What was appealing about it? I mean, I, um, so I grew up in Southern California, a little bit of 30 minutes away from the beach, but mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time at the beach, but it was strictly in the shore break, body surfing, bodyboarding and surfing. What about canoe? I, w I would assume you had access to those things I just mentioned, but what about canoe? Um, you know, in the beginning, I, my, my very first practice, I remember when I kind of got back into it and I was 12 years old and I, I went to the men's practice and I like literally was vomiting halfway through the practice. I was just like, so, you know, kind of a chubby kid out of shape, had never uh, excelled at any sports in my life. You know, I'd played soccer and tennis and stuff and I was just, I was never very good at any of it. Um, and even when I paddled, I, I you know, I, I started off pretty terrible. And then I think, you know, we had a coach that made it really fun for us. So practices were fun and then just, by the fact of just spending so much time in, in a canoe all of a sudden when I was like, you know, 13 and 14, I realized, oh, you know, I'm starting to uh, kind of do okay here. So for me, actually, you know, from the beginning was, oh, oh I can, I can uh, do well in races. And I started to get really competitive as a young kid, um, you know, when I was 16 and 17, flying to Oahu and doing the racing scene up there. And at the time there was only like three or four juniors that were really racing OC1. Um, and, um, and for me, I just liked being competitive and fast at a sport. And it was kind of not a great journey because then I started um, paddling to do well in races, uh, which is not necessarily um, healthy, I think, for, for anybody's sort of longevity in a sport or, 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 or as a reason to, to do a sport. Um, you know, so my, you know, uh, after, you know, when I was... 21 I was spending like 16 hours a week on the water um and it had lost kind of all of its its fun for me because I really was just going to to, to try and win and 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 you know it felt like work and I wake up yeah. at 4 30 in the morning to get on the water like oh not again um so I, I ended up kind of having a you know a falling out with paddling later on in my life as like oh no I gotta I gotta kind of get away from this um and I, I have a much healthier relationship with it now we were just talking with Dave about the parallels between paddling and surfing and that it is in fact surfing. If you open your definition of surf off of just standing on a short board, basically mm -hmm. the way a lot of people think of it. Um, and that happens in surfing all the time is people get into competitive surfing and it just becomes a different thing. Mm -hmm. You lose the essence of why it was beautiful in the first place. Yeah, no, when we were kids, you know, it's so much fun just to like be in a six man with, with five of your friends, you know, and, and a lot of time we're fooling around in it. Um, but, but, you know, you do a downwind run at 15 years old in a six man or, or in a one man. And it's just, you know, it, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's, it's, it's incredible. Cause you're just falling down these, you know, it could be like 30 foot faces, open ocean swell in the ocean. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
but it's definitely possible to get uh, um, sucked into the competitive side of it. Yeah, um, I suppose with anything. Yeah, you know, and, and now for me, I, I I took some years off, which I think we'll maybe get into it after I, I had an accident, and I um and I you know for so long I think I was like looking at it like like I had to do well in races and I had to do it kind of to you know push our company also. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I kind of got taken out of the competitive scene totally. And I thought I would never go back into it. You know, I just thought, oh, here's a good excuse why, you know, I'm, I'm not going to paddle again and I'm totally fine with that. You know, and then starting like, you know, two months after not paddling for a while, I was like, oh, I got to get back in a canoe. And then I slowly sort of, I, you know, started getting in a canoe once a month or so. And, and, and all of a sudden realized, hey, I really enjoy doing this. And mm. for me now, it's like, you know, I'm back to paddling maybe five times a week or so. And I just like, love it. I wake up in the okay. morning and all I want to do is get on the water. And we went from just paddling and like, you know, my whole childhood was paddling the biggest ocean possible, right? Like the, the windier it was, the better it was. And we just do downwind winds constantly. And now I just like every morning paddle up and down the river. I like, I, I don't go in the ocean unless it's for a race and it's just beautiful. It's just like dead flat. I'm by myself. I go in the same river I've been in since I was 12 years old. And it's just like, you know, this morning, every morning is beautiful, but this morning you get to the end of the river and there's dew falling off the trees and it's like you're in a forest and there's birds all around. And it's a totally different experience than the normal paddling experience. And for me, now that I'm doing it just because like, I love to do it or I get off the water and then I feel great for the rest of the day. And then I can't wait to paddle the next day, you know, and it's like finally after 20 years of, of this sort of love hate relationship with the sport, you know, now I'm just, I'm falling deeply Good. in love again. What, how um, long do you spend each morning on the water? I, I, you know, I, I, I live like three minutes from the canoe club. So I get down to the canoe club and I got like basically an hour from the time I leave the house to get back to the house. So I'm like, I just do like these 45 minutes, cool. like little up and down the river kind of That's thing. That's manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you talk about with your friends from high school, first of all, how's education here? How's public school education on Kauai? So I went to a um, private school, oh, you did. island school until eighth grade. And then uh, uh, Kauai High, which is a public school here for high school. And, you know, again, I don't really have anything to compare my high school experience to. I, I will say when I went to college, uh, I went to Claremont McKenna College in California, um, and I was uh, uh, very unprepared for, okay. for college. And, and basically all of their Hawaii kids all went to Punahou or Iolani, one of the private schools, and, uh, and they seem much better prepared. You know, okay. I can't necessarily blame that on my high school education, but, um, but yeah, it was definitely a struggle trying to get up to speed at college. Gotcha. Um, so you went to... California for college and then decided to come back to start the business in Oahu? Or? So yeah, I, I, uh, I went two years in California and then we were kind of getting ready to start and we knew we wanted to start the business. So I went back, uh, transferred to UH. Okay. Uh, and mainly because it was way cheaper and, um, you know, and I was able to kind of convince my parents that the money that they were putting into my college education, that instead if I were to save the money and go to a cheaper school, UH at the time was eighteen hundred bucks a semester. That I could put that money towards a business. So we kind of made a deal where I could, I could, I could get half of the savings that they were making from my cheaper college and put it towards the business. So then we were able to, you know, have the incredible good fortune to, you know, uh, have some money to start a business with by the time we were seniors in college. So the three of you decided that you wanted to start a canoe business. Mm -hmm. Why? What was the gap in the market? What were you going to fill, and how are you going to do it better? You know, when we were in high school. Uh, there wasn't necessarily a gap in the market. We just, uh, we knew we liked to paddle and we wanted to form our lives around the canoe. So it was, um, you know, we would, we would just sit at my friend's house before paddling practice. So we'd walk from Kauai High to his house and the canoe club was right next to his house. So we'd, we'd have an hour always to kill and we'd be eating, um, like, 
cup of noodles and talking about uh, how we were gonna build canoes. And we just did that like every day. And, um, and so, yeah, one of my, uh, I went to school for business. Um, my other partner, business partner went for engineering and the other one went to uh, Honolulu Community College to uh, composites manufacturing program. Um, and, um, and then now once we were at seniors in, in uh, college, we, a friend of ours told us that there was an open space at this warehouse kind of near our house where we were living in Kailua. And so we literally rode our bikes up to this warehouse, like looked at it for two minutes and the landlord was like, oh, if you sign a lease right now, I'll give you one month free. <laughs> we're like, oh, that sounds like a great deal. And we signed a lease like at the moment, just not knowing anything about anything. And, uh, Crazy. and signed a lease for this empty building and we had no canoe design, we had nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, and we, we figured it out. That's insane. So how did you figure it out? We, we partnered with somebody early on after we signed that lease, uh, somebody who had an existing design and was having, you know, some issues manufacturing it. So at the time when we kind of first started, uh, there was basically, uh, um, I'd say 70% of the canoes maybe were getting built in China. And there was a couple guys still kind of building like out of their garage here in, in Hawaii. So we had this gap from, you know, when we were in high school, we just wanted to build canoes. And by the time we, four years later, when we were in college, all of a sudden in that four year period, uh, Chinese manufacturing became a big thing and sucked up the whole market. So we knew then going into it that we were gonna differentiate ourselves by, by building a locally built canoe, right? The whole, our whole idea is we wanted to build canoes, not a, not outsource canoes. So we found, you know, there was a friend of ours who was sponsoring us at the time who was uh, building out of his garage and we partnered with him and started building his design. And then, uh, and then he, you know, worked on a design with the company for a year and we came out with what's the Pueo, um, which is our, you know, still our most popular canoe in 2008. Um, at the time, did you understand the market forces that were at play and what challenges you might be up to? Like there's a reason why all those builders moved to China, right? Yeah, no, we, um, you know, our, our, we just thought, oh, you know, all these guys are going to China. That means there's an opening for Hawaii builders to, to, to make a name for themselves. And, uh, and we were obviously really wrong. You know, the, the reason everybody goes to China is because it's, it's really hard or impossible to make money with composites manufacturing in, in Hawaii, right? Our basically costs us somewhere around $4,800 to build a canoe and we sell the canoe for $5,000, right? There's like, there's like a non-existent margin. Really? Uh, and then when there's an issue, you know, we just, we, we've been struggling really hard for 11 years. Um, whereas if you're getting a canoe built in China, they're probably getting landed in Hawaii for, you know, $2,200 or so and sold for actually more than ours now. So, um, what's the difference between the canoe that you guys built versus the one that lands from China? Uh, I mean, the, the in big terms of performance and uh, the big, the big difference first off in price is like the cost of labor and actually materials too in Hawaii is, is going to be, um, you know, probably 10 times more for, for labor. Um, but as far as performance from the beginning, our canoes have always kind of had a, and this was with, the, um, John Puakea, who was our, our partner before we're no longer partners, but he, um, you know, we had a kind of a rounder hull shape um, than most other canoes. And this, you know, the idea was to make a much more all around canoe, whereas at the time, and even still most hulls were, were a lot more flat bottom. And the idea was that they could start planing in the surf, but for the most part, you know, uh, they would work really well in big downwind conditions, but they were pretty not that good in the rest, you know, upwind or, or flat water 
where it's, you know, in Hawaii, we all love to go downwind, but still 70% of your paddling is not going to be in big downwind conditions. And there's, you know, races are often not downwind. So we, we kind of made this, came out the Pueo, which was just much more all around this, this rounder hull, you know, might not plane as well in a, in the surf, but it was much more efficient in all conditions. And so that's uh, how we kind of, um, you know, got a niche and, you know, by 2010 or 2011, probably, you know, 60% of the canoes were, were our canoes, um, in, in most of the races. And, um, you know, and, and recently that number has come down just cause there's, there's a lot of good stuff coming out from elsewhere. So it's, uh, the market is sort of tightened up a bit. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's not unique to the canoe world that China is notorious for, you know, stealing quote or borrowing IP and then just replicating something at a lesser cost. And so when I ask what's the difference between yours versus theirs, is there certainly a design can, you could break into the market with the design, but is there structural differences? Are they better quality and product? Do they last longer? So to be honest, yeah, they're, they're getting built in a sort of a composites hub in China, right? There's a lot of aerospace stuff going on or on around there. There's not a whole lot of composites going on in, in Hawaii. I think we're probably the biggest users of carbon fiber in, in Hawaii. Um, and so those guys have access to, to pre-preg, you know, prices that we couldn't even come close to, right? Pre-preg is going to be pre-impregnated carbon and it's sort of at a perfect ratio for carbon to epoxy and it's, uh, and they have an autoclave up there so they can, uh, you know, their actual composites lamination is going to be pretty, uh, uh, you know, their selling point is it's lighter and for the most part probably stronger than a, than a Hawaii um, lamination. Us, the selling point has always been though, you know, there's like 20 steps in building a canoe. Each of those steps, uh, you know, something can go wrong at any step. And so we feel like our quality control, you know, is, is uh, going to be higher mostly because everybody in our shop is paddlers, right? We know the customers, like everybody in the shop can see when the customer shows up at the door, uh, you know, and and if, if one of those steps goes wrong, that person is out in that canoe, you know, in 30 knot winds um, far out from shore. And if something fails, right, their life is is in our hands. Um, so, you know, we, we really pride ourselves on, on having really well-built canoes. Um, and so aside from the, you know, our inability to get pre-preg and our inability to put it in an autoclave, you know, we feel like the rest of the product is going to, uh, um, you know, be more reliable. So, so w walk me through the basic construction. It's EPS foam. So, so no, we core? have, we have, they're, they're, they're all molded. So we have, oh, uh, okay. uh, uh, foam core. Gotcha. And they're hand laminated. Everything's hand laminated. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and yeah. how, what are the size of the canoes? Uh, they're 20, 21 feet about. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, if you look at like rowing skulls, right? I don't know much about crew or rowing, but but those things sell for like $9,000 for a pretty comparable product. Whereas, you know, we're we're selling for 5,100 and it's just, you know, the market, our canoeing market can't can't handle much, much more than that. So right. for what goes into it and what we can sell it for, it's kind of impossible to, are, are really difficult, I think, to make it work in Hawaii. Yeah. And we've, you know, we've invested a lot in trying to um, automate what we can. We have a, you know, a CNC machines. We're doing a lot of our materials um, kits are sort of getting cut on the CNC machine. Our, our uh, seats are getting cut on the CNC machine. All of our uh, prototyping, we can do really rapid prototyping on the CNC machine. And that's one of the 
the benefits of being in Hawaii is right. The CNC machines right in our shop are my partner, who's the engineer and the brainchild behind all of it can come up with a design and, and three days later be paddling this thing, um, right. you know, because of our CNC machine really. Um, and, um, you know, and we have a pretty high temperature oven that my business partner built. And so we're, um, we're, we're, we've able to slowly evolve, but it's really, you know, if we were to try and bring in prepreg carbon here, it's, it's, you know, it's getting impregnated in, California likely, and then it has to get shipped in a refrigerated cargo ship to get here a container. And then we got to build a refrigeration system for it and, and build the proper oven for it. So like, it just, uh, it's difficult to do it at that type of scale when nobody else in Hawaii is doing it. Totally. Um, a lot of this conversation, I wanted to talk about local, first of all, entrepreneurship, but local manufacturing and how that affects and stimulates local economy and all that sort of stuff. Um, why did you, being born and raised on Kauai, why did you decide to start that business on Oahu as opposed to Kauai? So the idea was always to bring the company back here. Oh, was right? it? And um, we started on Oahu just because everything was there. Our fiberglass Hawaii is there, um, you know, and and our 80% uh, of the Hawaii market is there, you okay. know, and, and there's just, you know, if you, if you, uh, run out of anything basically you can find it on Oahu and um and we could find the warehouse space right there's a big open floor plan 4,800 square foot warehouse which is what we needed to to do you know we build a canoe a week I mean a canoe a day so we needed that type of space um and uh but still the idea was once we get running we're going to try and bring it back to Kauai and we've always you know tried we've looked at a number of different warehouses here and and it it you know it doesn't work for us for a number of different ways, right? It's one is that the supply isn't here. If we run out of something, Fiberglass Hawaii is not, you know, a 20 minute drive away. Um, and, and also you just can't find 4,800 square foot open, you know, warehouses here as, as we were, we were talking about a little bit earlier, um, you know, that most of our industry here and our manufacturing is really catered towards like, you know, high end cabin cabinetry or, or, or custom granite countertops because our real industry here is like building uh resort houses and 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 tourism so it's all kind of catering to that um and there's just not uh there's not much local manufacturing going on is that a good thing or a bad thing uh being the owner of a local manufacturing uh canoe building company it's it's certainly a bad thing you know and um you know f for us uh you know we're in it because we like to build up product, right? And we believe it's important to have the ability to build outrigger canoes in Hawaii, right? And there was, there was, you know, an, a dozen people building outrigger canoes before us. So we're not the first or the only guys to, to do this. Um, but for the most part, most of those guys have packed up and we're losing a lot of the knowledge, right? It took, it took 20 years to be able to get a really good canoe built here. And, um, and you know, there's, there's basically two of us are still building OC1s in Hawaii, you know, and, uh, the fear is that if, if that were, if we shut down and the one last other guy who's on his own kind of building one per week, you know, if they shut down, then that knowledge is really lost. And the only right. people who can build this canoe is, is in China and they don't have a connection to our sport. And it makes it just, I feel like less resilient in so many ways when we lose our capacity to, to build things. Um, you know, and if you look at right now with the, the coronavirus, um, right, I don't know if, when this thing comes out, there might be total pandemic in the US with coronavirus. Uh, but at the moment, right, this thing's this thing is looking like it could be a big deal. And all of the uh, face masks are coming out of China, right? So this is sort of global face mask shortage. And there's no way for the US to sort of 
ramp up face mask production because we don't build it. We don't even have the ability to build these face masks, right? So it makes us just so much less resilient. That's that's obviously just one current example. But but when we lose the ability to build these things, um, and we have an entire culture built off of more service industry or tech um, without the ability to actually create a product, I think we're um, less resilient and we're losing something. All, that argument makes a lot of sense for maintaining manufacturing in Hawaii at large, but why is there an importance on keeping some of that manufacturing in Kauai as opposed to Oahu? Because certainly from growing up here, part of me would think that you would want to keep Kauai pristine and just, I don't know, is there a value to have manu manufacturing in Kauai? You know, yeah, yeah, right now our, our entire industry here is tourism, right? We are just in completely reliant on the tourism industry and it sucks the wind out of everything else. Um, you know, if, uh, if I'm out there saying, Hey, we need more manufacturing space and, and we need to build it in this old, you know, what used to be agricultural land. It's like, no, you know, tourists don't want to see a big uh, factory making canoes. Um, and it pushes out, you know, so many different potential industries, uh, that, you know, try and rise up. It's like, no, that, that, that doesn't work with the model of tourism. But, but we can't be entirely dependent on tourism. And what's happening now is that, you know, on Kauai, um, you know, I'm not going too far in the weeds here, but 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 we have a tourism strategic plan on our island that says we have the capacity for 23 to 25,000 daily tourists here. And last year we were above that, you know, every single month and we're often at 33,000. And what happens when we go up to these numbers, tourists are spending less money per person, right? So our visitor spending like isn't coming up more and the island is just getting choked off right you, you just get stuck in traffic everywhere you go to a, any of our beach parks you know and, and there you, you can't find anywhere to park you can't put a towel out right like we don't have the infrastructure ability to, to handle more tourism and so it means we need to be able to push for alternative industries you know and and we really struggle as a company and, and we cannot pay the wages that we wish that we could pay so everybody who works for us struggles we struggle as owners but like so not saying that we're the savior to our economy but we have a big problem here in that nobody it's really difficult to afford to live on on Kauai right if most of my friends from college uh, of the ones who went to I mean sorry most of my friends from high school of the ones who went to college there's like two or three of us who actually came back here right just because you're going to take a job that that makes like a third of what you can make on the mainland and you're going to pay twice as much for housing. Um, and so, again, not to say like local community manufacturing is the solution to that, but definitely alternative industries outside of tourism. Like it's important for us to push against that, you know, whirlpool of tourism that sucks everything into it and try and get some alternative industries going. Right. And so some of that means, yeah, we need some more land for industrial space so we can cultivate local manufacturing. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you were manufacturing, obviously started the business on Oahu. What brought you back to Kauai? Because you live on Kauai now. So what yeah, brought so, you back? Um, so I was on Oahu for actually six years total, finishing out my AUH and then, um, and then four years with the business over there. And then in 2010, I was racing in the uh, Molokai Hoi, um, you know, Molokai to Oahu canoe race, which is our, our biggest annual canoe race. And I jumped out of the escort boat to do the first change and the, um, the escort ran me over, so I, uh, the propeller went through my back five times and severed my pelvis and um, severed my gluteals and broke off five spinal processes. And um, how does this happen, by the way? Uh, how do you get run over by your own escort? It doesn't. Uh, actually, it does happen. You know, there's there's a propeller injury per year probably in Hawaii, and most of them result in death. So it actually does happen. Um, but 
but in my specific case, you know, the, the, the rules have changed for the race, but back then in the race, the, you know, it's a nine person crew for a six person canoe. So you have three people who are in a motorboat who jump into the canoe. It's like a relay. So you're alternating as you, as you go across the channel and the race used to be, uh, I believe it was at 30 minutes. Uh, so the race starts and then at 30 minutes, they tell all the escorts, okay, find your canoe and do your change. So all the escorts had to stay far away. And then all these motorboats just go screaming around the race course right off, you know, a Lao point, which is this crazy rough point in the Molokai channel. So ocean conditions are crazy. You get, you know, 110 motorboats rushing around looking for their canoes. And the whole, you know, strategy is to try and get your crew into the canoe as quickly as you can, right? If you get fresh guys in there quicker than the other guys, you can, you can, you know, do better. So, so we all, that first change was, is always chaotic and it's always generally a short change. So like the canoe, you jump in the water when the, the canoe's, you know, 50 feet from you or, and bearing down on you. So we kind of did this quick change and there was two canoes actually coming down. So the escort had to get out of the way. So as soon as I jumped in the water, I jumped in um, feet first, you know, and he engaged the motor and um, turned and the back of the boat just kind of fishtailed over me. So I felt, um, you know, first I felt the hull hit my shoulders and then I felt the propeller, you know, ripping through my body. Um, you know, and then I remembered uh, reaching around and just, there was like no back there. There was like, oh. like I, like, and I thought I was cut in half the feeling like, um, Sorry, and I, even every time I think about it, like sucks my breath away a little bit. But I, I was going to uh, say, do you have like? I mean, I would imagine PTSD just from thinking about it or feeling that. Yeah, that I has did, to be so traumatizing. I did some. Um, anybody out there has PTSD, EMDR um, therapy. Right? Yeah, uh, I did that, and it, uh, to get through. I and I didn't have really bad PTSD. I just had. I, I, I had. Uh, I'd have dreams of like. Um, getting eaten by polar bears underneath a motorboat, just crazy dreams and just plane crashes, all these like, just like, you know, going from nothing to all of a sudden like total chaos. Um, I've which heard is, yeah. good things though about that EMDR. Oh, it's, it was amazing. Yeah. Really? And it's, it sounds so kind of hokey, right? It's, it's uh, the way that I did it. They, you just cross your fingers in front of your face, like slowly. And it, the idea is it to like, you follow the person's fingers back and forth, left and right. And the idea is to kind of massage the trauma out of your brain or from one hemisphere to the other. You know, and, and reading about it, I was like, this this can't work. But it, it's like, you know, I think the number one therapy for people coming out of war zones and stuff. So I did it. Uh, yeah, and I walked away from the therapy thinking, this this didn't work. And then I just never had a nightmare again about it. And it's uh, a pretty short... Um, I spent I spent maybe two and a half hours or so doing it. But um, just once? Just one time. A lot That's of people do I mean. lots, of, yeah. lots of... I think people, you know, do, do three or four or more times to, you know, on, on harder trauma. But, but it's a relatively short course of therapy. Yeah. When you yeah. think that other people go to talk therapy for years on end, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um, so you sustained a horrific injury. So yeah, I, I had that, um, injury and in a number of ways I was just cr crazy lucky with it. You know, the, um, the deepest hit was through my, right above my butt, um, which is the one that severed my gluteals. And as like the, um, surgeon said, like you can't get hit even close to that deep anywhere else in your body without like severing some organs. Right. And the thing actually like hit my kidney or my liver, um, but didn't, you know, puncture it. So I was pink blood for a while, but, but, you know, and then it crossed over my spinal spine and, and exposed my spinal cord, but didn't actually hit the cord. Right. If that even a fraction of a millimeter deeper and it would have nicked the cord. So I remember being on the escort boat and the guys are like, can you move your feet? And I was like, I was like, yeah, I can move my feet. You know, and they're like, you sure? And I was like, Thinking, oh my God, am I not moving my feet here? You have this idea of like people with phantom limbs, right? They think they can move it. And I was like, I'm moving my feet. And, uh, and, and then, uh, you know, and then they're talking to me about like, oh, so tell me about your wedding, you know? And I was like, I've seen enough like war movies for the guys dying to like know what's going on here. Yeah. And then I heard them call, they were calling for the, um, 
the Coast Guard to get us, and they said on the thing he's not going to make it back to Haleolono. Um, and then I ended up going, making it back to all of a sudden, you know, like we're, we're in Haleolono. I can feel us as we get into the flatter water there. And I was like, oh, I guess we made it back to Haleolono. Anyway, so, um, yeah, I um, that accident uh, really, really changed my life in, in so many ways. Um, you know, one, I, uh, because I th thought I was dying and I remember just lying on the back of the fishing boat, you know, sort of face down in, in my, washing my blood kind of go by my face. And, um, and I had this really intense sense of, uh, connection, uh, which I've never felt like before or since, and I can't even explain it, but it was like this, uh, it sounds hokey to say it always, but it was like this like tangible feeling of like, um, of love to my crew who was on the canoe, on the escort with me, you know, then to my, my family and like, like just my friends. And it was like, it was just like waves like of love connecting me to everybody. And I remember just lying there being like, wow, you know, this feeling like is incredible and it feels so right that we're all connected. And like, here I am only figuring this out as I'm about to, to die, you know, like, and I wasn't like scared. I was just sad that like, oh, you know, oh, this is, this is what life really is. And here I am like losing it. Um, you know, and, 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 uh, and then I never felt it ever again. So, it's, you know, it's not like I walked out of there just feeling like waves of love connecting me to everybody else uh, at all times. But I, you know, I, I remember the feeling. Um, and um, anyway, and then I ended up waking up in, from surgery on, on Maui and, and my wife and my, my dad were there. And I was like, you're going to be okay. And I was like, um, and then I, so I was on Maui for a while and, and then in the hospital. And then I came home to Kauai to recover. And after I was home for two days, I... Uh, emailed my business partners saying, Hey guys, sorry, I'm not going to come back to Oahu, you know, but I'll do everything that I can remote, remotely from, from Kauai. Um, and part of that was just like being back here. And I, you know, I'd, I'd been gone from Kauai for eight years or so. Um, and I just felt like I could never leave again. It uh, became that clear in that short of a period oh, of time. Yeah. Just because of the one incident. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. Um, put everything into perspective. Yeah. And it's always been, you know, it's, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done to tell my two business partners, you know, I was kind of one of the ones really driving that we do this canoe company and then to tell them, Hey guys, I'm not going to actually be there to help build these canoes anymore. Um, so that was in 2010 and you know, it's been 10 years, I guess. So I, um, you know, I've been for a while, I was doing kind of all the customer service and all the finances for the company. Um, and I've sort of moved into more just sort of finance and a little bit of the customer service stuff. Um, but, um, but yeah. Uh, so we'll carry on that thread, but I want to go back real quick to um, that feeling of love that you said that you had, that spiritual kind of connection. I wonder when I've, I was, did an episode, um, I don't know, do you know who Sal Masakela is? He's no. like a sports commentator, mm -hmm. action sports commentator. And um, he had recently done this ayahuasca trip and talked about this interconnectedness of, and as we kind of talked through that, we kind of ultimately landed on the idea that it strips away a lot of ego and a lot of pride and a lot of these cynical things that we build in. We just, this armor that we put on mm -hmm. to get through regular life or to make business decisions or to, you know, bed down the emotion. Because if you lived with that level of raw emotion every day, you really wouldn't be able to get through the day probably, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if that's kind of what that was. And 
you can induce it through maybe different methods. Um, you know, like if you yeah. can strip away ego, if you can strip away pride, yeah. what is left? Yeah. And it's probably a lot of that. Yeah. You know? No, totally. And I, you know, I, I, it, it felt sort of like, you know, for this 45 minute duration of this boat ride that sort of I taken the shroud off and I could, I could, it, I could see. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I like, I never would talk about love or connection in any way before that, you know, and then I came out of this just telling you, like, oh my God, you know, like, like, I love you guys. And like, you know, like, and it was, and, and again, after that, I've, I've definitely felt, you know, like, like I'm building back the armor, you know, and, and, yeah. um, for me, you know, it, I feel like every so often I can sort of get back into there. And I remember I woke up, um, the next morning after the accident and I, um, saw the sun rising over, uh, it was either the West Maui mountains or, or Haleakala, but it was from the window of my hotel room. And it was just like watching the sunrise and it was like beautiful. And I'm in this quiet hotel room and my wife is sleeping on the couch, you know, and, and it was kind of the first, I think getting through my, uh, the haze of all the, uh, you know, the, whatever had put me to sleep for the surgery. And I was just like, Oh my God, you know, like felt so connected to that again. And then, so now every time I see, you know, like light when I'm paddling in the evening or the morning and I'm with friends, I'm like, Oh my God, look at that light. And I'll just like right. stop and sit there and just like, look at it, you know? And, and so for me, I feel like the point that the part that still kind of breaks it out of breaks me out of my, my own armor, I guess, is to, to see that type of light. Uh, yeah. And it's a small version of what you are experiencing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but still, yeah, it was kind of the, point that I wanted to get to is like, how do we live in that state of being more frequently and little moments like that through paddling or surfing or whatever help do it. I think that's probably why we're drawn to those things, the little spiritual connection to it. Yeah. And you know, and for me, a big part of it is, is trying to sort of cultivate empathy in my own life. Um, right. When you, I feel like when you have this sort of momentary deep sense of connection with everybody else, and then I think the way to carry that through, um, into your daily routine is to try and be empathetic at, you know, at all times. And I, you know, I think maybe we'll get into it later, but as a, now an elected official and, and we live in this culture of outrage, especially from our elected officials. Right. And I think when social media and everything, everything's about kind of cultivating outrage, which is like the exact opposite of like what I feel like we need to be doing. And it's so tempting for me sometimes too, you know, you get really mad about something or somebody and it's so much harder to um, force yourself to love that person, you know, like, like even they might believe entirely opposite of you. And it's like, you know, but, but, but make the effort to, to break through the outrage and feel a sense of connection with that person. So mm-hmm. for me, that's kind of in my own daily practice. And I, I totally fail a, a lot of times, but I, 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 I at least try to do it. Even setting the intention is a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and use that to segue. But as we do, can you also tell me about your wife's upbringing and 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 how you guys met um, and why that's relevant to? Yeah, uh, my wife uh, is actually a um, Cambodian refugee. She came to the U.S. at um, she was actually born in a refugee camp in Thailand and then came to the U.S. and she was one years old and grew up in uh, uh, um, projects in South Central L.A. Did she come with her parents? She, yeah. So they actually, they, um, when their first year, I think there was like six of them living in a one bedroom apartment in Echo Park or something in, in LA. Um, so yeah, she lived with her, um, five siblings, uh, in, um, in South Central LA until she was 20 years old. Wow. Yeah. Um, so she was too young to actually witness the horrors of the Cambodian genocide. Yeah. yeah she, um, 
So she was, you know, born in the refugee camp. She wasn't there for the, um, you know, Khmer Rouge and the, the killing fields, but she really lived it sort of through her parents yeah. in a way, you know, and it, it's her story to tell, but, but, um, but there's a lot of, I think, intergenerational trauma that gets passed down. I think so. Too. Um, when you're the child of a, you know, of a survivor of a Holocaust in any fashion. Um, so we actually went back to Cambodia. It was her first time ever going to Cambodia uh, in 2013. We went and, um, and it was a really hard trip for her. Uh, did you have kids at that time? No, that was before we had uh, kids. Okay. Yeah. Um, so where did you meet? Uh, she was doing a, um, cause she, uh, she couldn't get a passport. Um, so she, her college did these like study abroad type things. So her study, you know, abroad was, uh, going to Hawaii. Um, Hawaii's not really abroad, but it was as far as she could, uh, she could go without a passport. So, uh, she was here for a couple of weeks and my, um, my best friend, uh, went to school with her, went to college with her. And they like, I'm pretty sure just happened to bump into each other on the campus. He was like, he went to college with her. He was living with me for a semester, literally living in my closet, not a walk-in closet. He just like lived, he had a bed, just enough room for like a little bed in the closet. He lived in my closet and then uh, happened to bump into her on campus. Was like, oh my God, what are you doing here? And then, uh, and then he didn't have a cell phone at the time. Uh, this was kind of before everybody had cell phones. Um, but uh, um, he uh, gave her my number. And then, so she was calling me to like hang out with him. And then we all just started hanging out. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's, what was your heart for local government? What's your role, first of all, in local government? And then how did you get into it? So I, uh, I'm a member of the county, Kauai County Council. Uh, it's my first term here, my year and a half into it. Um, and it was, you know, really, I think started after my accident, I came back home. Um, and, you know, the the long story there is that I, um, in order, you know, with the sense of connection that I felt, I felt like I had to sort of change the direction of my life in a way, you know, and I had spent so much time paddling. And as we talked about in the beginning, the paddling was really, I think, driven by ego and to, to do well and, and doing the business. And the business was all about trying to like, you know, ego also, you know, and, um, and really f for me, you know, I mean, I, I, we, we, we did it because we wanted to do local manufacturing, but, but it's still um, driven by a desire to like succeed in a way. And then I feel like after the accident, it kind of took all of that away. And, um, and then in a way I sort of wanted to like start over. And we, um, my wife and I uh, built this uh, yurt off grid and um, in kind of in the, in the, in the rainforest in the wettest part of Kauai. And, um, and we just had this real commitment, um, or God bless my wife. It was me having this commitment and, and she went along with it, but to try and um, live sustainably as, as much as we can could. And the idea was to like, just be self-sufficient in every way possible. So we, um, we went and this will come back to me running for office. I promise at some point here, uh, but we, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we, uh, we put in six solar panels and built a water catchment tank and we're growing a lot of food and you had to walk across like, or through in the beginning of a bridge. So we'd walk through these two rivers to get to our house in the beginning. Um, and, um, you know, when we lived there for eight years or so and before kids, before my daughter was born there, she was there for a year and a half or so. Cause that complicates things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was also like pretty early on, you know, we felt great about it. I'd have friends come over and I'd turn on the light and I'd say, Hey, look at this light. It's like powered from the sun, you know? Um, but pretty early on, you know, I, I realized that hey, my solar panels, like in the middle of the day, were just like shunting power. Right. So you have your batteries are fully stocked and this, power has got nowhere else to go. So the system literally just like, you know, 
is is getting rid of the excess load. And uh, and for me, I thought, huh, you know, like that seems inefficient, you know. And then I saw like, you know, it's raining a lot, and our catchment tank is full and then the thing just overflows or it's nowhere else for it to go. And I sort of started to have this realization that like, you know, we put so much effort into building this, uh, you know, quote unquote, sustainable life off the grid. And in so many ways, it was so much less efficient than if we were on the grid, right? If, if, if I had been connected, that solar comes not just into my battery and gets shunted in the middle of the day, it actually would go to my neighbors who need the power, you know, and when we first went off the grid, our island's um, utility uh, was at like 10% renewable power. You know, and then, you know, now they're at like 60 or 70 percent, you know, and during the day was at this sort of exponential increase in renewable power coming on as we were off grid. And I realized, oh, this is all happening, like not because of me and my efforts at sustainability, but really despite me, I was almost making it harder by not being a member of the utility here for them to go in this sustainable direction. And for me, it sort of, you know, started me down this path of, of like, you know, wow, like I'm trying to do this by kind of creating an island. Uh, and, and being self-sufficient, but that's like totally not the answer. The answer is to like, you know, we have to do this together. We can't do this by ourselves, you know? And then I ended up, you know, we just moved last year to, um, to Lihui, and uh, which is, you know, a main sort of center of commerce on Kauai, the center of government. It's where most of the jobs are. <laughs> and I went from like, you know, this off grid life where we couldn't park within like a thousand feet of our car, you know, walk through these rivers to now I'm living in this older house in Lihui. And like, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm more, you know, my carbon footprint at least is smaller now than it was then because I just never drive anymore, right? And it's sort of like the answer was like the oldest answer in the book, which is just like live close to where you work. And that that's how to be more sustainable here and be part of the community, right? And now that I'm in Lahui and I've, you know, neighbors and we're, you know, just you walk around saying hi to all your neighbors and helping neighbors when they have a problem and being have the time now because I'm not driving all the time to to do more sort of community work. And, uh, and uh, started me down sort of this path of realizing, wow, you know, we, we need to figure out how to do this together. Um, you know, and the other part of it was that, uh, you know, over those seven years, I was working, doing some work on sort of boards and commissions. And then I served on our um, general plan. We have a general plan for Kauai, which is kind of the guiding policy document for our island. And the general plan sort of s says the exact same thing as all of that, right? That we need to be able to sort of, um, uh, 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 instead of, sprawling outwards and every person sort of on their own on a big agricultural lot, which is really inefficient from a land use perspective. It consumes all of our agricultural land. It makes for really expensive housing. Everybody's then stuck in traffic driving everywhere. You know, that the answer is sort of, um, you know, unique towns surrounded by open space, right? And we should be able to live close to where we work. And so that, you know, as I'm coming through my own realization, I'm, I'm part of this general plan development process, which kind of says the same thing. And I just like was like, oh my God, here is like this answer for us to like live sustainably. This is kind of the direction that we should be going in. Um, and, and as I saw, like all of my friends not able to move back home because they can't find a house to live in. And here is our general plan, which I think has the answers, which is like, just make it really easier for people in town cores to, to add housing units and to, you know, um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> then, then sort of next thing for me to do here is to, is to run for office to try and make sure that this great general plan gets, gets implemented. So that was my own, um, journey, uh, in, in running for office. It seems um, daunting. Like I wouldn't even know how to run for office. You know, obviously, I I'm sure I could research it and figure it out. The other detail is, um, I think it might be different in California than it is here. But I generally have a distrust of politicians, and it feels dirty. Like I don't even want to go play in the mud with those people, and I don't think I'm equipped to. Unless my father was in it, I yeah. wouldn't even know how to really. Um, play that game. 
Did you feel like the local politicians were doing a good job at their job? Did it feel like a safe place to go and engage? Um, so one, you know, I, I don't want to comment on like my opinion on other people doing their job, but I do feel like as I've been in it, you know, there's like, it feels dirty. You know, often when I say I'm a politician, people, you know, like you're like, you know, it's instead of it having sort of this aura of like public service, it's, it has this aura of corruption in a way or, or somebody who, you know, like the story in the news last week was yeah. insane. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, uh, but, um, you know, for me, now that I'm in it, I realize like there is like, there's like no corruption that I've seen. At least, you know, people are not being like bought off to make decisions. All of my colleagues up there are really like trying their best to make the best decisions they can given their own sort of framework for the world, right? Given who, who, where they grew up and who their friends are and the different types of things they support, right? We might like disagree with each other, but they're certainly making um, what they think are the best decisions that they can make. And I'm yeah. doing the same, right? And so, you know, I think, um, you know, it's often, it's easy to sort of get sucked up into this thing, thinking this all thing's a big sham, right? These people don't work for me. They work for big corporations or whatever, but there's like, there's like at a, at a local level, we have like none of that here, right? So you could have a huge business come in with, with all of this, whatever money to throw around to politicians. And like, that doesn't make an impact. Like what my friends tell me on what is their priorities is going to make the impact. And I think that's the same for like, for all of my colleagues up there. And, it, and it obviously at a state and a federal level, you know, um, the influence of money becomes bigger and, and yeah. maybe you lose connection with your actual like community and your constituents. So it's going to change. But for me, like working at a local level has just been like, has, has been great. I mean, there's so many, especially the, the like, uh, civil servants and people who really work in government, like the subject matter professionals in our planning department and our roads division, our engineers and stuff, right. These people are all really good at their jobs. They're really passionate about the work that they do. Um, and it's just been, it's been, a it's been really um, sort of enlightening and illuminating to, to be part of this world of passionate people who are trying to make a difference, right? And there's obviously government is dysfunctional in a lot of ways. It's hard to make sort of systemic change, yeah. but I think everybody is, is for the most part trying to push it in the right direction. Good, because when I hear you, you, you just gave me your whole origin story for the last 40 minutes. I get it completely and it sounds um, so authentic and that's who I want to have making decisions in local government is somebody who's doing it for the right reasons like you. And I do think that's largely what civil servants are because you could, you know, pursue any sort of lifestyle and there's a lot of complication with this one and probably not a lot of financial reward often. And so you'd have to do it from the bottom of your heart. However, when we see stories like we see in the news last week, it does paint it with that really ugly brush mm -hmm. and it feels like um there's not a lot that we can do to get involved so i'm glad to see yeah. that you can and also you know of course as in anything there's gonna be individuals who go down a bad path and make a series yeah, of bad sure. decisions right but i think um as a system right like the, the, the at least at a local level the system itself uh is does function well and it does respond to what the community wants What's your response been? Um, I know you've only been in it a year and a half, but like, how's the community response been to you? Um, there's that detail that we talked about early on where you're not actually Hawaiian. So is there a local contingent who is just gonna be resistant to whatever policy you're trying to implement because you're not 
local Hawaiian. Do you, I, I've read, um, or Dave, I think sent me some of the civil beat articles that you've written. And of course there's always trolls, no matter what it is that you're writing about as sincere and earnest as it can be, there's always going to be trolls who are going to take the opposite approach and try to argue some de other detail as yeah. the local community supported you. Um, yeah, I think, yes, the local okay. community has. And I think there is, um, certainly on Kauai sort of, uh, some sort of local Hauli tension. Um, and it's easy to go down a path, um, in public policy where you're inflaming that tension. Um, you know, there's kind of a famous story of somebody who was working on like a bill to like not allow for burning in backyards, you know, and this like just inf blew up this thing like, well, we can't like have backyard barbecues or, you know, emus and like, you know, all this when, you know, I don't know if that wasn't the intent, obviously, but that's how it got and it, and it created this big local holiday divide. Right. And I think there's policies um, like that, which can sort of tend to inflame those same dynamics. Um, and um, it's just important, I think, to be, you know, aware of it. Yeah. Do you feel, or let's start with what are the biggest issues that you feel are facing Kauai? Uh, so it's, you know, long-term issue is like number one for us is climate change, you know, with, with sea level rise and um, impacts to the global economy and our reliance on tourism and all of this, you know, I mean, the, the, the long-term impacts of sea level rise or of climate change for us are without a doubt going to be devastating. Um, the state of Hawaii, Department of Transportation has said something like 20% of our highways are at risk of flooding with three feet of sea level rise, which we're going to see over the next, you know, 50 years. Uh, and that there's no plan. Like, like, it's just too expensive to really do anything about it, you know? And, and you look at Waikiki, right? Waikiki's underwater at three and a half feet of sea level rise, um, that road network. So, like, so again, there's just, this is a, a monumental problem with, with without any real good solutions and you look at what places have done with um with coastal flooding and it's like buying back coastal property and maybe you can do that in a region which is just like oh you know here's our community which is set back and there's a couple of these coastal properties which are at risk of flooding and then the the state can maybe buy those coastal properties out but here in hawaii right like we're we're we're, we're a large percent of our population lives um within range of three and a half feet of sea level rise so it's just not possible to to buy out all these coastal properties so part of it's just that uh, adaptation for us in sea level rise there's there's no Great answers here. Um, and then the big challenge is how do we transition to a zero carbon economy, right? Which we just, we have to get there by, by 2050 or so. So that's gonna be a monumental transformation. That's sort of long-term. Um, the uh, the most immediate crisis that we're facing right now is, is a housing crisis. The cost of housing on Kuwait, you just, you just can't afford to live here. And if, and I, as I said earlier, right? Most of my friends who went to college, they never came back. The people who have sort of committed to staying on Kuwait, they're spending, you know, 30, 40, 50% of their income on housing. Um, and it means that they've got to work two jobs to make it work, right? And everybody's just like, it impacts everybody all, all the way down. Um, and uh, the cost of housing in my lifetime has gone up by 345%. That's just like the increase in cost of existing houses. So, so really nobody can afford a house in my generation and it's pushing us out. Um, and then, um, you know, I'd say those are the, the certainly the two biggest issues that we're facing. How do you begin to solve the housing issue? So that's part of what, you know, as I was kind of referencing our general plan earlier and, and thinking, wow, this thing has a lot of the answers in there, right? So much of it is that we've, we've made it really hard to 
build housing here. And it's kind of the only new housing units that are getting built. 80% of our houses are built on agricultural land or really low density residential land far from our towns, right? So, and as we build only these houses, which are tend to be sort of expensive houses because they're built on, you know, a couple acre lot or something. Um, and it's also driving our traffic problem because everybody then is commuting further and further to get to home to work. Um, and we've made it really hard within our actual towns to, to add on housing, right? Whereas we have this sort of land use pattern in Hawaii built on plantation towns and in all these old plantation style towns were all built sort of pre-automobile um, or in the early days of the automobile last. So there are all these like just great walkable communities that are really built on like, you know, mixed use, having residential space on top of commercial space and, um, and everything's kind of within like a 15 minute radius. So we have sort of that backbone, backbone in all of our communities, but then we've made it really hard to sort of replicate that building pattern. So if you see any new communities that are built, um, one, it's really hard to do mixed use development. And then we have this huge, like, you know, you got to build, put two parking stalls per X amount of square feet. So half the lot has to be parking stall. And we're really then copying sort of this suburban model from the mainland, which leads to just parking lots, you know, uh, communities. And uh, so, so what our general plan does is try and sit, recognize this pretty clearly. Hey, we got to break this paradigm. We cannot continue to consume our agricultural land. One, we don't have enough agricultural land. Two, the houses are too expensive to build and it's pushing everybody off and it's causing all these traffic issues. Um, so it's really about, one, is, is, is making it a lot easier for people to build housing um, on their current lots, right? Additional dwelling units, what we call like Ohana units here, or making it much easier to convert a portion of your existing house to like a rental unit or for your kids. We have this really, you know, aging population here. So as we get, you know, a couple, you know, who's seven years old and their kids don't live there anymore. And, and public policy makes it really hard for them to cut their house in half and try and rent out half of that to somebody else, right? Mm. We need to make it like as easy as possible for them to do that or to build, you know, a house in their, uh, uh, something in their backyard. Um, and then also, you know, recognizing that like in Lahui, which is like the job center for Kauai, we have 60% of the island's jobs and only 25% of the island's housing, right? So everybody commutes into and out of Lahui. And almost all of our traffic issues on the island are caused from that crazy imbalance, right? So it's it's just recognizing that we need lots more housing in Lahui. And part of that means, you know, higher densities, we got to go a little bit higher. Um, and to ensure that at least people who want to like live close to where they work can find an affordable house close to where they work. So for me, that's that's the answer. And it's, it's pushing back from or at least just uh, uh, and, and giving people more options to, to build basically. Um, without consuming our agricultural land. You've been in it for a year and a half. Do you feel optimistic that politics can provide solutions to these problems? Yeah, I mean, uh, because the problem has been public policy, right? Because uh, because we make it so hard to build, right? The, the permitting process, the price of it, you know, it can cost you $20,000 to try and build a, put a kitchen in, in your unit. Right, right now we're sitting in this great sort of um, uh, lanai with a bedroom on it, right? If they wanted to install a kitchen in here, uh, they'd have to probably spend $20,000 or more, right? That's just, that shouldn't be how it is. Uh, so yes, because public policy is part of the problem, then I do think that public policy and, and local politics can be part of the solution. But what I mean is, um, I'm sure other people prior to you have had that same exact thought and they haven't been able to rectify it via politics. Now that you're on the inside, is politics the answer? I mean, one, I think it has to be the answer because a lot of these barriers aren't going to come, aren't going to get eliminated anywhere else, right? If we're going to try and reduce the cost of housing, it means we need to reduce the barriers to building in a lot of ways. So these barriers have to come from the inside, you know, and I think because of the size, you know, if we were talking about this five years ago, there just wouldn't have been as much of a willingness to have this conversation because, hey, you know, like if I live in a house, it's not necessarily in my best interest that my neighbor 
as on a rental unit in his backyard, right? I don't want to see the extra car on the street or, or have, you know, another family living in my neighborhood, maybe. And it also, you know, uh, when we're talking about ways to bring down the cost of housing by insuring more housing units, right? It's against anybody's best interest to bring down the own cost of their housing, right? We have, if you own a house on Kauai, you're making 5% a year just on increasing value of that house. So what I'm saying is that there's not a whole lot of, um, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of public support for policies meant to enable you know, things that can bring down the cost of housing, right? There's a lot of, and this, you see this across the United States, right? People, homeowners, for the most part, like exclusionary policies, like saying, no, I got my house, you can't build anything near me. Um, I think now because of the size of the crisis, because no young people can move here, because the people who are staying here are, are all crowding into one house with their family, right? Um, because it's so hard to find workers for anything. My own company is hard to find workers. The county has just tons of open positions because we can't find the workers because people can't afford to live here. I think that everybody recognizes the size of the crisis and is willing to um, sort of make these shifts that they wouldn't have made before as a public. So I think, you know, five years ago, I introduced something to try and increase the density in Lihui. There would have been more pushback than there is, I think, at this moment. Yeah. Community is the answer. Yeah. Yet again. Um, and, and it's easy to yeah. see, or it's easier to see on a smaller island, you know? The microcosm makes it a little bit more obvious. Yeah. The problems feel insurmountable on a giant landmass, basically. Yeah. No, and I think also that's just recognizing, hey, we can solve this. I think for a long time you sort of hear, yeah. like, these are global issues, we can't solve this. But like, but, like, no, most of our population growth is natural born population growth. So it's not as if, like, we just have, yes, we certainly have lots of people who are coming here and buying up expensive houses. But for the most part, we don't have that, like, in our town cores within our actual communities. It's, it's our own growth. So I think that recognizing that this is our own issue to try and solve and that we have every tool that we need to, to, to solve it here. Um, and, uh, and then nobody else is going to do it for us, right? The state's not going to do it for us. The federal government's not going to do it for us. This is on us. Yeah. Do you have any political ambitions beyond this? I mean, what is the long-term goal or are you just taking it year, no, year by year? I, you know, part of the reason I'm here is because I love public policy and I'm, I'm also getting like a master's degree in public administration with a focus on public policy. And I just like, I love reading about housing policy and, and tax policy and, and it, it, it's what I do with all of my time. And I think at a local level, you can make change much, much easier than yeah. you can at any other level, right? Like if, 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 you know, I have no aspiration to go to Congress, but if I was in Congress, right, those people aren't like really writing legislation. Like it's, 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 it's mostly about communications and the symbolism of the fight at that level. Whereas at, at this level, it's all about trying to, you know, work to the departments to, to create policy that, that, that changes people's lives. Right. So it's like just problem solving and it's incredibly rewarding. I've, you know, wrote in past 10 bills or so this year. And it's just every single time you pass a bill, it's like, it's, it's, it's incredibly rewarding to see the sort of fruits of your effort. So, so no, like right now I'm just, I'm so happy and I feel so, blessed and honored to be like in the position that I'm at, at where I can literally just, you know, all day long, try and figure out how to make people's lives better. Good. Yeah. That's great. I want to bring it back in closing, bring it back to Kamanu. Yeah. Composites. Um, a lot of what you said about it makes me feel like that business model isn't sustainable. Um, like you said, the job, the labor market is challenging. Yeah. Pricing's challenging. Is there any export market for those canoes? Are they all sold in Hawaii? And the other detail, when I was asking about China versus locally made ones, with the surfboard industry, one thing that we can say is, look, or in California, certainly, we're held to a higher 
EPA regulation, higher standard for employee care and safety and all that sort of stuff. So you can feel good about spending the money on the California made surfboard, knowing there's a fair wage being paid. Everything is disposed of properly. It's not going to contaminate the environment. And I can't say the same about boards that are manufactured elsewhere in the world, you know? So what is your, knowing that you have a heart for sustainability, what is the kind of policy with manufacturing there on Oahu? And so, um, yeah, I mean, as you said, exactly. Like our, the way for us to succeed is for people to see that there's value in a Hawaii built or an American built product um, outside of the value that they would get from something outsourced, and right? And so much of that value comes from the fact that, hey, we are, you know, paying people living wages, right? We wish we could pay them more, but we're paying people like, you know, local people in Kailua, that 90% of the money that comes into us is staying in our local community, right? That we're not, uh, that we have pretty strict um, environmental regulations that we have to follow as far as stormwater with our dumpster and, and what we're putting into the air, right? So people, I think, are buying it as you said, for all of those reasons. And, you know, it's so often we talk about environmental policy as being like anti-business, but like, no, like, like the only way we succeed as a business is, is, is based on people having that knowledge. No, I'm buying into this product because I know that they're doing it right. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the big picture as far as, you know, I mean, how we've existed this long and how we will continue to go forward. You know, and the other part, we certainly need to ensure that, you know, we have the facet designs and, and, and you know, the highest quality all around. Totally. You know, and, and as far as the rest of our business model, we've been really trying to move into the six man canoe market for a while. So all we build is one person canoes. You know, we built about 10 uh, or so six person canoes over the years. But um, but as far as, you know, just looking at the margin on, on a product, right? There's, there's like, no money to be made with a one-man canoe um, and the margin is much better with a six-man so this year we're really hoping to make that um, transition to six-mans um, and as far as you mentioned export we do export you know Hong Kong is one of our biggest uh, you know uh, customer bases you know they they like Hawaii built canoes in, in Hong Kong we also ship to um, you know a container a year to Australia we do maybe 20 canoes a year to California or so so we're, we're you know we do ship even though probably 80 percent of our market is in Hawaii okay yeah. fascinating Awesome. Well, Luke, where can people find you? Uh, our our uh, Kamana Composites uh, website, kamanacomposites.com, um, and all the information is on there. And as a politician, <laughs> how do people find you? Uh, you can uh, you can call me on my cell phone, eight zero eight six three five six six two three, or uh, you know I have a campaign website, lukeevslin.com, um, or on Facebook or any of that. Awesome. Uh, but but hopefully, if, if you're a coy person, then the way you can find me is by by, by seeing me out there and coming up to me. Uh, Good. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking so much time. Yeah, thank you, David. I really appreciate the conversation. You're welcome. I hear the sound. It's going through my brain. I hear talk of people. I feel falling rain. I see a man crying Cause the whole world has let him down Kids are laughing giant thank you to Luke for taking the time to 
illuminates some of these issues that we've been discussing through this podcast series. Luke's a busy dude and has family, obviously, so I really appreciate him taking the time to do this. You can go to his website, lukeevslin.com, and of course, kamanucomposites.com to learn more about Luke, his business, and uh, the work that he's doing on Kauai. And I've also posted links to all of that stuff, as well as their canoes and everything that we discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's also a comment section at the bottom of the page, so you can leave a comment for Luke there. I will ensure that he sees that. You can also link to all of our other work. I have multiple shows in production at this point. Uh, Scott Bass and I are now recording Spit Weekly, so you can get that every Tuesday. Of course, Chaz and I are always on The Grit every Friday, so you can grab that too. The archives of both those shows, as well as Surf Splendor and everything else, is all available on the website for free. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes available for free. Donald Brink just dropped a new episode of Swell With My Soul on Tuesday, so you might as well grab that. And then Scott released a new episode of The Boardroom Show this week with John Wayne Freeman. So there's just plenty of podcast content around these days. I will be back here on Surf Splendor on Wednesday of next week with an amazing chat with Terry Chung. Amazing just because Terry is amazing. He's an incredible board builder. Um, He's in his early 60s and he just got back from Nazare with Laird Hamilton when we recorded that conversation. So he has stories of that trip that are just crazy. And then I'm going to close out this Kauai series with a two-parter with Laird Hamilton's father, Billy Hamilton, which I am super thrilled to share. If you know anything about Billy, he is a uh, incredible storyteller and he's lived quite the life. So stories of, um, you know, his first encounter with Laird, he's actually Laird's uh, stepfather, but his first encounter with Laird on the beach in Oahu to his involvement with the film Big Wednesday to just all sorts of stuff. So really, really awesome chat with Billy that will close out this series. Lots to look forward to through the end of May as our world moves towards normalcy, towards economic recovery, presumably, and towards uh, surfing again, hopefully. I hope that you're still employed. I hope that you are healthy and well, and I hope that you are able to get into the water. This is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to shred on in whatever way that you are able to do so at the moment. See you next week.
بهم 